Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 23. I'm your host, Sarah with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're discussing inadvertent looting. Are you a looter? Are you sure? Stick around as Ken and I discuss ways to avoid inadvertently looting a site and what to do if maybe you think you already have. We also discuss different ways to get involved with your archeological community through citizen science. Get ready to think critically. Going to the pub when the day is spent. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology but we don't do hey everybody and welcome back to the archaeological fantasies podcast i'm your host sarah with my co-host ken hi sarah how are you doing i'm all right all right and today we are going to discuss uh basically looting and what not to do and if you have questions who to ask so Ken, what are your experiences with, I, I want to say it's like unintentional looting is specifically the point. Like some people just don't understand that they shouldn't pick things up. You know, my weirdest story about that, Sarah, and this unintentional, I mean, they're intentional looting. People are going out there to steal stuff because they just want to collect it or they right, want to sell right. it. That's one thing. But my, my weirdest story about unintentional looting is when somebody actually called me at my department office to let me know that they had found more stuff at a site I was digging, and they thought I'd be really excited to hear nice. that. So <laughs> really, it actually happened. So, so we're, we're excavating the site. In fact, the site that I talked about in the previous podcast, the Lighthouse site. The Lighthouse site? So, yeah, so we, are, we were you know, on TV. We were, there were some newspaper articles, and so it was great. We were getting a lot of publicity, and as a result, people were coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, listen, I'm a descendant. I, I have some newspaper articles from the, the 1920s, all good stuff. And then I get this, this young guy who calls and says, oh, it was, that's so interesting. And because I heard about this cool site, we went up there over the weekend, and, and we've been digging around, and we found stuff, and oh, we were hoping that you could identify what it was. Oh, and it was like, oh, are you guys kidding me? What? <laughs> and they said, no, no, we were digging up there. Like, we were doing like what you were doing. And we said, well, actually, you understand that this is state property. And and in order for us to dig, we had to get um, a permit in order to do this excavation. And everything that we find reverts to the state of Connecticut because it's a state forest. Right. They were they were speechless, Sarah. They had no idea. They were extremely apologetic, and they actually met me at the site and gave me the things they dug up and showed me. And the sad thing was they actually – it was one of those bizarre instances in which they really thought they were doing a good thing. Yeah. And they looked They looked at the, the – um, they watched the uh, the show on – it was TV news. 
you know, three, four minute bit that did on our site. So they didn't have the right equipment. So they went out like, like to, to like a toy store and got the kinds of stuff that kids use when they sift beach sand. And that, that's what they brought to an archaeological site. Now, these were guys who maybe it's the, now maybe there's a fault. The fault lies there in with me, assuming that people know you shouldn't go and dig up an archaeological site. This is not something that an archaeologist would recommend you do. But these guys actually thought they were they were doing archaeology and they were helping me out. And, and they were kind of a part of that, 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 you know, the brotherhood sisterhood of archeologists. And it was just, it blew me away um, that here these guys were thinking this was a good thing. And yet they were looting a site. Right. And that's, that's kind of what I want to address because like you said, if they're, if you're a professional looter and you're listening to this podcast, I first question your judgment. And secondly, you know, I can tell you not to loot. I mean, you already know you're looting. It's the people who are unintentionally doing it. People who think they're helping. I, I was working out uh, at Boxley Cabin in Indiana, um, in Sheridan, Indiana. And uh, the person who was leading the dig, she was really close with a lot of the locals because they, they really took to taking care of that site. They That was their thing. And one of the, I guess he was like a local drunk or something, um... But yeah, he came up to us while we were digging and he just had these two like buckets, like those heavy duty buckets that you can get at Lowe's. And he they were just full of things that he'd just been picking up on at the site during the like six months that we were gone between the two seasons. And yeah, he just presented them to her. And man, she, you know, like she tried to be nice about it. But as she kept going through the bucket, she was just she, you could just see her getting madder and madder and madder. Because it's it's all good stuff, but it's you know it's gone now. Right, I mean, and so, the I context mean, is gone, and associations. It, it, there is a reason that archaeologists are sort of feel a proprietary interest in the archaeological record. Um, listen, I'm not I'm not going to pre- pretend that I'm a, a brilliant scientist, but I am trained to excavate and recover material in a way that allows us to kind of maximize the information that we that's there. Right. And that if you're not trained in that way, you may think, hey, I'm like doing archaeology, but in fact, you're probably destroying more information than you are recovering. A, a little side thing here, Sarah, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is, you know, at the end of the day, we may leave artifacts in situ. Right. So we are not ready to remove these things right. from the context. We haven't mapped them in yet. We haven't to- taken up the total station and measured stuff in. Maybe our, we need more better photographs. We're going to clean up the, right. uh, the site a little bit. And we may leave those things in situ, and it may be over a weekend or it may be over a, a, a period of time. And we actually had an instance in which somebody arrived at the site on a weekend and they picked up at least one artifact that we had left in C2. Mm. And we found out who did it. Yeah. And his reaction was, those dumb archaeologists, they left something there. They didn't even know they had something. Oh, jeez. Because, again, not understanding that right. the, the, the locations of these things, their spatial associations, is a key part. And that, you know, we're not always, we, we do not, we don't dig like woodchucks. Right. We're not ripping stuff. Oh, my right. gosh, look what right. I found. Um, we leave these things in place in order to get a better, sometimes broader perspective of what's there in the field. 
And sometimes uh, we leave things behind on purpose. Like sometimes, you know, the season's over with or an area we just it's just too valuable to dig. We're we're leaving it alone for a reason. Sure, exactly. So, no, it's I I get very very nervous leaving um leaving open units unattended over the weekends when on the few like phase threes that I've been on and you know, the field schools that I've been at, it's like, yeah, both the field schools that were, I was on were protected land, but that doesn't mean people aren't yeah, coming on to it. And of course with the CRM project, you know, it's just CRM project. So, you know, you, you try to get as much out as you can by the end of the day, but sometimes, like you said, you're just, you're stuck. But you, know? you don't want, you don't want to alter your methodology no. simply because, well, We've got to leave now, and we're afraid to leave these things in place. Right. So we're going to take them out of the ground, even though we would rather not do that. Right. Um, and that's a horrible position for an archaeologist to be in, to say, well, I'm going to lose information if I tear this out of the ground now. I know that. Um, but if I don't tear it out of the ground, it may not be here when I come back on exactly. Monday. Exactly. And that's that's sort of tragic. Uh, the, the worst thing, you know, the, the, the worst scenario for an archaeologist is look it took us years to find this place it's taking it's been in the ground waiting for archaeologists the right. attention of archaeologists for five thousand years and in two seconds yeah somebody well-meaning or not is going to destroy much of the information that's there for us um that and that's that's obviously we feel very strongly about stuff like that so let's talk about some basic concepts that people may not be totally familiar with, and one of which being context. Um, just a lot of people don't, even people who kind of think they know what it means outside of the field of archaeology don't really understand what it means. It, you know, because a lot of people, their only interaction with the term co uh, context is you know, the context of a word in a sentence. And it's like, sure. yes, that's, that's very similar. Like the, the meaning of a word can change, especially in the English language, can change depending on the, the context that it's in, the, the words around it or the, the meaning of the sentence. And it's very similar in an archaeological situation because the importance or even the uh, interpretation of the objects or the, the soil stain or even the landscape can be altered depending on what it's what it's in relation to on the rest of the site. So when people come in and they just kind of grab and go intentionally or otherwise, it completely changes that and we can lose data. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I have a, a, a figure that I, I drew a rough figure and then I, we had a professional illustrator finish it up and for one of my textbooks. And it's the scenario I lay out there is here's a spear point. All right, we're going to talk about this spear point in five different instances of association. Right. And in one of the drawings, the spear point is actually embedded in the bone of a human being. Right. In another scenario, we find the spear point mixed in with a bunch of charcoal and animal bones. And in another scenario, there's a human burial and the spear point is along with other spear points, is by the side of the, 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 the person who's been buried. And I said, in each of those cases, the spear point looks exactly the same, the same spear point. But the, the contexts are entirely different, and therefore the meaning of that spear point, what it was, is entirely different in each case. If all I have is a spear point, I don't know what that spear point necessarily meant, but if I have it in, in its context, 
in situ, how it was left by somebody either in a burial, um, in a, a, a scenario where it's a weapon against a person, or in another scenario where it was used in a hunt. Those are three entirely different um, uh, reconstructions, and right. without the context, those are all entirely lost. Exactly. The, the, um, the, the analogy, and I realize this is an imperfect analogy, but if you've ever watched um, any of these the, the uh, police procedural dramas on TV, oh, yeah. and, and they, they arrive at the scene of a crime, and you watch as the CSI people, the, the analysts, try to reconstruct what happened in that crime. And you, you look at how, you look at, at them taking photograph after photograph after photograph, right. and you see them drawing out the um, the trajectories of, you know, there are the bullet holes in the wall, and the casings are over here, and here are the traje- trajectories. So what they're trying to do is reconstruct that scene of the crime. Um, what was it? I think it's it's the Agatha Christie detective, Hercule Poirot, the ah, French detective. Poirot, yeah. And, and you know, he arrives at the scene, and his, his iconic phrase is, touch nothing. <laughs> Because every little bit, every piece is going to conceivably is going to give you another uh, piece of information, another clue about what happened. Um, and and I'm, I've I've read the Sherlock, the, the Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories. Oh yeah, even even Sherlock was on about it. Yeah. And and yeah, you know, he will he'll just he he goes nuts when all the local constabulary who are not very well trained have walked over a crime scene and he can't figure out which footprints belong to who. And the context is it's all destroyed. You can't reconstruct it. Right. That's the same thing. I cannot, a, a criminal, a criminologist can't reconstruct a crime scene by a bunch of individual items in plastic bags. They right. want to know where are, where are the bullet holes in the wall? Where are the blood spatters? Where are the footprints? Where, there are the where are the fingerprints on the very you know if you if you all take all those things out of context you cannot reconstruct the crime and archaeologists are trying to reconstruct the scene it's not the scene of a crime but the scene of a life right and of course all of those associations and contexts are absolutely crucial and if and, people and, go to a site and rip everything out that's gone and just to poke fun at Ken. Um, I would like to point out that you would not be the first person. To do I'm just, that I'm just, I just today. want to point out that your two references were like a Victorian era writer and uh, books that were published in like the late seventies. Oh, probably earlier <laughs> than that. Yeah, I bet you it was even earlier than that. No, but that's okay. <laughs> no, now listen, I... if you can find a better detective stories than Sherlock Holmes, I want to hear them. I, I you know, I guy. no, I can't because I love Sherlock Holmes, and and allow me to have a side rant here. I love the fact that Sherlock Holmes is the father, basically the father of modern forensics, and is a fictional character. I just love that a fictional character basically created a field of of science. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's also very important to point out that the irony here is that Arthur Conan Doyle creates the most logical and deductive mind in the right. literature, arguably. And and Arthur Conan Doyle believed in fairies and ghosts, and he was an ardent believer in spiritualism, and was a supporter of these two little girls. There was a movie about it years ago. But the, the, the true story is that these little girls were faking photographs of fairies in their garden. Yeah. And Houdini knew they were faking it, and other scientists knew they were faking it, and Arthur Conan Doyle said, no, 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 those are actual photographs of fairies. So here's the guy who's the who creates this amazing fictional character who's deductive and logical, 
um, and who actually there are there are specific um, quotes that I can pull out from Sherlock Holmes stories where Holmes is in fact denying the existence of paranormal and spiritual right. stuff, but yet Conan Doyle was was actually quite credulous and gullible about that. You know, and a lot of writers will tell you, "I am not my character." I am not my character. So, you know, I mean, that's that's uh, that's Conan Doyle's defense. Also, wasn't the spiritualism later on in his life anyway? Um, <laughs> I don't know exactly. But my understanding is that it was, I, be- I believe it was his son who was killed during World War yeah. I. Yeah, and yeah, he was yeah, devastated. yeah, you're right. And his, his firm hope and desire was that, in fact, he would be able to contact his son in the other world. And I believe... And I'm not I'm not going to make fun of Arthur Conan Doyle at all. Um, but I think that he was grossly taken advantage of by by um, as many by scam people. artists. Yeah, as scam many artists. Yeah. And, that, and that's really pretty sad because they were they were promising him that his deceased son about which he grieved for the rest of his life, Conan Doyle did, yeah. that his deceased son was there, out there in the ether, and that he could communicate with him and that and he could have a conversation with him. And that was, they exploited his desire, his grief, and that's shameful. Yes. Okay, but yes, it was, and let's all have a sil- moment of silence for Mr. Conan Doyle. Um, actually, Sir Conan Doyle. Uh, but let's get back on topic. Uh, talk about context. What's another? That would be the first time we ever got back on on topic after a digression, but that's okay. (laughs) We don't digress. We, we never digress. We just kind of, we elaborate. We, we go the long way around the topic. So, uh, so we, we got context. What's another really important, um, concept that being misunderstood may lead to unintentional looting? Well, <laughs> another thing that I think is similar is that um, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple of examples, not necessarily directly related to looting, but but it tells the same story. When I was um, do, I did an archaeological archaeological field school, went right out of college um, in Ohio uh, at the University of Cincinnati. Kent Vickery, who uh, unfortunately has passed away, um, was he was a student of Stu Striever. So Vickery was in that kind of vanguard of let's save the soil, let's do flotation. We're finding all the stuff that we never thought was there, seed remains and, and tiny bones, and it was great. And so Kent Vickery was a wonderful mentor and teacher. And, and while I was there, this is, we're looking, oh my God, it's the early 1970s. <laughs> Don't um, date yourself. No, like, yeah, I'm okay. I think the site was about 15 minutes old. <laughs> but anyway, um, we got a call, or the, the, the lab there at the University of Cincinnati got a call, from a developer saying that they believed that they were they were finding they what they thought was a tusk in a pit that they were digging up with their their heavy equipment, and a number of of Vickery's uh, graduate students went to check it out, and in fact it was a mastodon tusk, highly weathered. It was kind of falling apart, but it definitely was a mastodon. Yeah, and they arrived and said and. The the developer said, "Listen, if you want, we will we'll let you dig this up." Um, and uh, the uh, protection laws were a lot different back yeah, in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, they were. So the deal was that, in fact, the, the developer, the contractor, was being very generous. And so the 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 team arrived 
with a standard archaeological toolkit. So little brushes and screens and dental picks, and they start removing the stuff. And these these um, these construction guys, of course, they come over and they're shaking their heads, going, "Guys, that's going to take you forever. Listen, we'll give you we'll give you a, a you know a backload. We'll give you a, 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 a backhoe, a, you know, a backhoe, and you'll have we'll have it out for you in ten minutes." And of course, the archaeologist, "No, no, you you don't understand." stratigraphy here the layering in the soil where something comes from in three dimensions is absolutely crucial and these guys were nice enough to, to walk away thinking these crazy archaeologists yeah, right. out instantly and that's the, the the fact of the matter is when when somebody comes to my archaeological site and they're looking at an excavation unit that's two meters by two meters and maybe at this point it's a meter down right and they ask me so did you do that today yeah. I said, no, that's been the last, that's five weeks of work on the part of those two people. And they say, are you crazy? What, I, don't you, can't you just take shovels and dig that stuff up? And I think that's one of the problems, especially with folks who believe they're being helpful. Right. Is that, you know, we really don't, we use shovels to, to fill in the holes. We may use shovels in a phase one survey where we're doing test pitting, but after that, the shovels go away. We're removing soil in very, very small, thin layers because, again, the location of everything. It, in order for me to, to date two parts of a site, I might need very precise measurements of exactly which stratigraphic layer right. those materials came from and if you show up with a shovel and start just start digging say well it, it, it's like a treasure hunt archaeology is not a treasure hunt yeah. it's a lot more like detective work and so i think again that this misapprehension that why why do you think you know about wh why it's so meticulous why we're so slow it's not because we're not you know, we're not hard workers it's because we understand um excavating an archaeological site is the, is a destructive activity right we are destroying the site right and we want to destroy it in a way where we are so careful and meticulous in how we destroy it and recording everything right that by the time we're done we still have a very very clear notion of where everything was where everything was in relation to everything else and the precise levels from which every item was recovered okay and we're gonna go to break real quick and when we come back we will further this exact discussion You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back and we're going to continue talking about basically inadvertent looting and basic concepts of archaeology that might 
with a better understanding help you prevent inadvertent looting. It, building on what you said before the break, Ken, I think another thing that people don't completely understand is the amount of paperwork that we do. And that certain parts of the paperwork have to be done at certain times of the excavation, or again, all of that information is lost. Like you were saying, um, you know, the, the, the excavation itself is total, can be total destruction of a site. Um, and so, you know, we, even with the modern technology that we've got, which I love the hell out of, you know, we got color photos and black and white photos and the, the, the ability to actually record the position of an artifact in actual three dimensions directly onto right. a computer nowadays, you know, it's great to have all of that, but we still got to have the age old fallback of paperwork where, you know, things are noticed. Uh, you, you notice things about the soil, the, the texture, the color, the, this, the, that something else, you know, like the position of the artifact itself. Like, is it on its side? Is it laying flat? These are things that the, the total station's not necessarily going to pick up. I'm, I'm sure it can if used properly, but, um, but yeah. And again, if you just show up and you just start digging holes, you know, you see who can dig the fastest hole down to two meters, you're going to lose all of that. One of the, one of the things that drives me, I mean, I, I lose, am I allowed to say I, I lose my shit or is Chris going to cut that out? Well, I'll tell you what, Chris, I lose my shit. <laughs> When I go, when I when I see a student when, in my field school who has gone out there, we use Ziploc storage bags. So if somebody's excavating a quadrant of a one meter square, they're excavating five centimeters, and I tell them again and again and again, what, before you start digging, with a sharpie, with a permanent marker, mark on this bag oh, God, yes. the site name, the unit name the quadrant name, the stratigraphic level, the date, and your name. Label and when, damn bags. And, and, and here's the deal. And I'll go, I'll walk over to somebody, and I'll see them putting artifacts in an unlabeled bag. Yep. And I say, I am, I am actually, I'm going to take the trowel, and I'm going to stab you with this trowel. <laughs> because here's what happens, and they don't believe me. They think, oh, I'll remember. It's, Until I'm note, don't here. be I'll one of remember. Ken's field students. No, uh, no, you can be one of my field stu students, but God damn it, he will write the you. information on the Ziploc storage bag. <laughs> because what, what, when we go back to the lab and we're going through, we've got a day bag. So all the material from right. that day goes in that bag. And I pull out, it happens every field season. I pull out a Ziploc bag with artifacts in it and there's nothing written on the bag. Yep. And I say, I, I really do. I, I mean, I don't know that I've ever made anybody cry. But I, I get extremely angry. Oh, I wager you've made someone cry. See, I see. Here's the deal. I get it. These kids are passionate about this. They're excited. They you know, they want to start the actual process on a given you know in a given morning. We're out there. Uh, it was really cold yesterday, and I want to get back to the actual excavation. Right. They don't want to take the two minutes it would take. They want to take those two minutes to write that information on the bag, well, and then they forget about yeah. it, and somebody else picks it up, and and, and we get back, and then yeah. I literally have to go from person to person. Do you recognize these blood flags? Yep. Because otherwise, this is garbage, right? We, and I, I'm exaggerating. I don't, you know, I tell them it's garbage. It's not really. I, you know, uh, my field director told me that when and when I was in school, we had a, a whole a whole bag of bags that came in with no labels. 
And yeah, I mean, she did. She pulled them it's all out. She laid them all. Frustrated. She she laid them all on the table, and she's like, "This is trash. I'm just going to throw it away. This means nothing to anyone." Fortunately, it was really just a bunch of flint flakes, so nothing important was truly lost. But the the point was made. Right. You know, there's it's useless. It's absolutely useless. And that that's, and you know, when we're if we're that obsessive that we are. We are absolutely denigrating and belittling people who haven't written something on a bag. You can understand how you show up with a shovel and you just figure, I'm going to dig a bunch of stuff up because it's like a treasure hunt. How 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 angry and how frustrating that is to us. Yeah, because the only difference right. is, is I'm probably going to be nicer to your face because you didn't know any better. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. The, the dude who's in school or doing the CRM job with me should probably know better. Yeah, people always look at me funny when I, I label, because I always label my bags. I always, I'll have like a bag or two ahead. I, I'd rather throw a bag out right, because course. it's got too much information. It's got the wrong information on it than put stuff into a blank bag. But you can imagine, you, maybe you again, this stuff has been in the ground. Maybe it's 500 years. Maybe it's 10,000 years. Yeah. And now we are the, we are privileged being able to recover this material and we want to maximize the amount of information we can we can gather from this yeah and to go back into a lab and have a bag of stuff that's not archaeology okay we have we have failed whoever mm -hmm. you know we as a group or that individual has failed and we we want to avoid that kind of failure because that's kind of that's an epic fail for an archaeologist. Yeah. But again, that shows how important, how seriously we take, as you say, the paperwork, the reams of paperwork yeah. that we we maintain in order to make in order to again to maximize to minimize the amount of actual destruction we do to the data that um, is the at the at the, the core at the heart of what our research is all about. Yeah. I, I mean, we I can think back to the last field school I was on just to the binders worth of, of paperwork. And it's I can understand your frustration because, you know, you're constantly dealing with students who are who are learning. And, and I mean, you don't, at least in my opinion, you don't want to be too hard on students. I mean, you want to be hard on them because you don't want them to screw up when they get out into the real world. But you don't want to be so hard on them that they're like rage quitting your class. But at the same time, like, you know, I had to write, I had to create a poster based off of data that other people had collected from their sites, from their units. And this was my second field school after being in CRM for a while. So it's like, I'm, I felt like I was an old hat at it. I could be just, you know, blowing my own smoke. But, you know, I'm going back over the, the paperwork from the students who this is their first field school. And I'm just like, this is useless. You know, there's coordinates are missing. There's no there's no thumbnail sketch. There's no notes. There's just numbers. You know, it's like, what what did you do? You know, and it, it's it, it's useless information to me, whereas um, a well done dig, you should be able to take the paperwork and lay it out um, linearly, you know, you know, level one, level two, level three, level four. And you should be able to uh, to know what that unit looked like by simply reading the paper layer by layer. Yeah, you should be able to reconstruct Yeah. in three dimensions what that site was exactly. before you excavated it. Right, because once it's gone, it's gone. Exactly. And it's the same thing with the inadvertent looting. People see something and they pick it up and they don't record where it goes, where it came from. Even something as simple as, you know, just writing in a date book or on a little note card, hey, I found this 
at this location, you know, uh, hiking in the woods in Fort Ben, you know, that's, that's more helpful than nothing. I mean, it's still probably going to make the item useless, but at least you tried. What's one of the things that I, that I've run into a lot in, there's a, there's, there's a a happy ending to the story. Um, and I'm sure you've done this too, Sarah, is to talk to local people who have artifact collections. Yeah. And these are folks who, who don't dig, but they usually are picking up artifacts in plowed fields. So yeah, they're surface collecting. Yeah. So obviously these things are not in situ. They're not in their original locations. Right. But so often what, what will happen is they collect from a wide number of fields kind of across the state. Right. And then, and then when I, when I get to see these collections and these are nice folks and they're more than happy to share, they're proud of their artifacts. Yeah. And I look at them and it's like, well, where did this one come from? And their answer is, well, Connecticut. And right. Say, but that, that's not really, I'd like to know more accurately where this came from. And they go, well, I don't know. It's pro- it's someplace in Connecticut because they just put all the stuff in the same, in the same bucket. Or it's something they've inherited from their grandparents. Exactly. I've actually, when, when I, again, when I was in Ohio, Kent Vickery took us to a local, a very nice local collector, Sarah. The guy was a sweetheart. But what he did was he took all of the spear points and he made them into kind of mosaics. Okay. So yeah, I've seen was, stuff like that. Honest yeah. to God. Sarah, there was an American flag made out of arrowheads nice. where the white stripes, the, the, the red stripes were like a, like a, a jasper or a red shirt and the white, the white stars were quartz and the blue background was like a blue flint. And you, you know, walk into this guy's garage and he was really proud of it and you kind of felt like standing up and saluting. But that was of limited value archaeologically because we didn't know where any of those individual things came from. Right. Now, when I was working, I've been working here in the Farmington Valley in Connecticut for years and years and years. And at, at some point, somebody told me, oh, there's this guy, Mark Banks. And Mark is, he works over at the SK Lavery, which was a, an appliance store. But like in all spare time, he goes out and and looks up, you know, looks for artifacts in plowed fields. And I thought, all right, great. You know, I'll go look at this. And I, Sarah, I went into this guy's basement and it was like walking into the Smithsonian. Nice. He had, he had built shelves. This guy had no background. His, his degree, his, his bachelor's degree had been in psychology. He had shelves. He had, he had bought little, you know, containers from Home Depot and every artifact was, was, labeled he had his own system of recording but he had reams of books and you if you picked up anything of the thousands of artifacts he had you picked one up he could tell you exactly where he found it in what field in what town what day he found it other artifacts that he found around it i said you know what mark you ought to take a class in archaeology because you're obviously really good at this Mark Banks now has a PhD in anthropology nice. and has his own CRM firm here in the in, in Connecticut. Good for so him. he took this really seriously. So um, don't get me wrong, there are people out there, especially surface collectors who are not disturbing intact archaeological sites, no. who, who do good work and are sharing the information with people. And you know, we don't want to discourage people who have an interest in archaeology. Um, and somebody like Mark Banks ends up being becoming a professional archaeologist. Right. But that's different. It's if yeah. If, if in that case, 
he was doing the kind of work that a professional archaeologist would do, and he kind of discovered that on his own and through his reading. And that was that was good stuff. Now, see, you you don't want to discourage that kind of behavior. Um, Mark Banks being an exception to all that. Right. I do as a CRM. As someone who's predominantly done CRM, where right. most of our work is phase one, so it's all walking survey and you know digging random holes. The problem with the surface collectors, um, no, they're not disturbing an intact site, right. but they are erasing any evidence of the site on the surface. And so when when phase one people, when CRM people come through to do a phase one. There's no evidence of these sites. Gotcha. And so what's happening is we're missing sites because we're, just, we're not catching them because all of the stuff's gone. And then you'll you'll go into town, you know, after a day of walking fields for 10 hours and you'll go to the local bar and you'll run into, you know, the guys who have been collecting that field for generations. And they've got all these boxes full of all this cool shit. And you're like, well... <laughs> That would have been nice to find, you know, and it's and it's not just like you're bitter, at least for me. It's not just because I'm bitter that I didn't find something cool out in the field. It's, you know, I kind of see CRM as like the first the first layer of defense against people who want to, you know, people CRM usually comes in when somebody wants to build something. And right. a lot of times we're like surveying for roads or pipelines and things that people don't want in their backyards. And, you know, I can't help you if I can't find a site. Yeah, I mean, let's let's at least agree that we should divide these folks into two categories. One category are the the real acquisitive types, who for them, they're not going to share anything with anybody. So they're if they've got a place, it's like it's like the guy who has a fishing hole and doesn't want anybody else to right, go there. Right. So there are guys like that for sure, who they are not. They're going to keep mum about the places where they go and find arrowheads by walking the plowed field. Right. And those, I have no, I have, I have no sympathy. I have no, I don't, that's not a good thing, but there are people who in a way they can be used as kind of that first line of, we go into an area, listen, there's a pipeline going to go through here. It's going to go through this yeah. plowed field. And if, if they tell you, Oh, there's a guy who has, you know, has a, an agreement with the landowner and he walks the plowed field after, after, after the first plowing in the spring and after a rainfall, but he's more than happy to show you what he's got. That's, I mean, I think that's better than the, the folks who are, they're not going to tell anybody because that's their own bailiwick, their own private place right, right. where they um, uh, pick up arrowheads. And I mean, yeah, that there, there's a difference between like the helpful informant and the, the guy who's trying to keep mum. And, you know, I'd rather have the helpful informant over the guy who's trying to keep sure. mum. Um, but in all honesty, I'd rather not have either. And I'm not trying to be mean. I mean, I know no, some I people, no, people are learning. It's a learned behavior. It's passed down through the family. I mean, it's just it's a tradition kind of thing. But the, the thing is, is, you know, we're in the modern era now. We could take pictures. I mean, everybody's got a cell phone and all cell phones have cameras on them unless you've got like a cricket because you're, you know, old. Um, <laughs> but. It would be, it's so much nicer for us if we can get out there and find something and then be like, hey, there's a possible site here. Maybe we should do some more investigation into it. And a lot of times, this is the other thing that people don't know about CRM work. A lot of companies don't want to pay for the phase two and the phase three survey. So a lot of times if you find something on a phase one survey and you deem it significant, 
which is not every site, but enough, um, the company will just reroute. It's cheaper for them to reroute than Mm -hmm. it is for them to pay for the the digs to remove the site. That's so, also a time thing too. I mean, yeah. even if it's even if the, the expense is very close, or even if it's cheaper to do the archaeology, the archaeology is not going to get done overnight. It's right. easier to redesign and quicker to redesign yeah. than to to, to, to st- wait for six weeks while archaeologists are doing a thorough, careful I, job. Of I wish I got six weeks, but yeah, no, I, I yeah, really, yeah. Usually, it's like, hey, you got two weeks, go. Um, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's a whole other conversation, right? There. Let me get let me get back since we're talking about this um, to kind of steer us a little bit back to our theme of kind of archaeological fantasies. In <laughs> doing an archaeological survey, where in fact I was directed to a number of people who had artifact collections, right? That over the years they had walked plow fields, and um, for some reason, I don't know if this is universally the case, but everywhere here in the in Connecticut. They keep their their arrowhead collections in old cigar boxes. Why cigar boxes? I that's don't a thing. know. That's a but thing. Maybe that's a thing. But anyway, so I'm going through, and there's all the, the standard stuff, a lot of arrow points and broken pieces of pottery. And in the middle of this cigar box, Sarah, there was an Egyptian scarab. Oh, you've talked about this. Yeah. Scarabs. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, and yes, okay, where'd you get that from? I don't know. I picked it up someplace. And now, again, context is all important. In right. fact, a bunch of arrowheads in a cigar box, I have no, even if you tell me, oh, I think it came from that town or that field, it's not, they're, they're, the chain of evidence has been broken. Exactly. And certainly with the scarab, <laughs> where did that come from? Uh, could, you, could somebody find that scarab and say, oh my God, ancient Egyptians were in South Windsor, Connecticut, because that's where the scarab was found. Right. Which does remind me, I think of something I've ta- talked about in a, in a previous podcast, just as an example of how important context is, where um, the um, the editor of Ancient American Magazine... Yeah, yeah, video, with this oil lamp. ...had this oil lamp. And he said, well, this oil lamp was... He, he bought it at a tag sale, or another person bought it at a tag sale in Virginia or West Virginia, you know, that's that artifact is absolutely and thoroughly and completely devoid of context. Oh, yeah. I have no idea where that came from. I right. don't. Because it wasn't excavated. We don't have photographs of it in situ, in a stratigraphic right. layer, in the soil, with a little board behind it indicating you know how many centimeters below datum that was and, and the direction you're looking in. And without that, it's just a really cool object. And we have and, and just to use an object like that as in an attempt to prove that ancient people from the Middle East were in Virginia right. is a fool's errand. It's it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd is the only way to describe that. Yeah, Without but they'll, that, they'll take that they'll take that limb any day though, won't they? They they do. I mean, it's 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 diagnostic of fringe archaeology. <laughs> yeah, is to pick up something and say, aha, right. This is this proves something or whatever. Um, and, but that's that's the problem. Um, I had, honest to God, Sarah, looking through a private collection, and again, this is because of lack of context, lack of keeping records. Mm-hmm. The, the gentleman was as well-meaning as you can possibly imagine. Right, and, and they usually are. And yeah, and in the middle, he had, what he what he had done is he had taken I don't know if it was a piece of plywood or masonite I don't remember, and what he had done is he had 
affixed using some some like um, like a, a, a sticky wax. He had affixed these to the board so he could display it in his basement. They all look really nice. And in the middle of now, this is Connecticut, right? Right. We have we have igneous rocks in Connecticut. It's all basalt. We do not have volcanoes in Connecticut that produce obsidian. Right. The nearest source of obsidian to us, where I'm sitting right here, I think is Wyoming. Oh, wow. Wyoming is not anywhere near near Connecticut. Right. Yet in the middle of this board, where he had the artifacts that were part of his collection, was an obsidian spear point. Nice. No doubt. It was obsidian. And when I asked him, well, you know, where did that come from? He couldn't tell me. Yeah. It was only later that I found out that some that he was among a group of guys who traded these things, like baseball cards, so that if he had a really nice Norman Skill Flint point, he could trade it with somebody in Montana who had where obsidian, there's obsidians everywhere, but they don't have that really nice blue flint that we have here in, right. uh, near the Hudson Valley. So these guys are trading these things. That's can you imagine an archaeologist finding a collection, wherever the con- whatever the context, and finding stuff from? Holy God, they've got artifacts from Montana here. We're, we're, we've got evidence of tr- of long distance trade. I I had a a prof, a geology prof in grad school, who was a, a, a Bob Black, a incredibly a brilliant man, a sweetheart of a guy, and a real expert on glaciers. And he told me once that he was he had uh, hitched a ride with like a navy pilot uh, at on Antarctica uh, he had to go from one base to another <laughs> and while this guy, this this guy's got a a, a bag the, the pilot has a bag of rocks in the plane and black said i mean you know he's a geologist because the guy doesn't know he's a geologist, he just knows he's a scientist. And he says, why do you have this bag of rocks? And he said, I hate geologists. And wherever I fly in the world, I pick up rocks. And then where I, whenever I fly elsewhere, I leave the rocks behind. So I've got like, ro- these are rocks from Italy. I'm going to put them at the north, at the South Pole. And oh some geologists God. are going to find this stuff and it's going to drive him crazy. Oh my God. Well, that's, that's specific. That, <laughs> isn't that crazy? Um, but but that's the that's that's a problem without having yes. detailed and accurate yes. records yes. for everything. Which is not which is not giving people. Please don't take that as an idea, and and don't do <laughs> no, that. No, okay. don't do that. That's but, not funny. It's not a cool idea. Ah, so not funny. Okay, so we're gonna take our final break, and when we come back, we're gonna come up with some suggestions for people to a way for them to avoid inadvertently looting the site. The Archaeology and Ale podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out the Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back. And can so so can we we've we've talked about you know we've talked about context we've talked about 
paperwork. We've talked about, you know, not field walking or at least being generous if you are a field walker. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, what are some suggestions we can give people to keep them, you know, you're out and about and you find something. See, this is my view. You're out and about and you find something on a hike and you're like, ooh, that's cool. Instead of picking it up, I would suggest taking your phone out and taking a picture. You can even flip it over and take a picture of both sides. Just leave it where you found it. And then, you know, if you're really feeling generous, I don't know, email your local, email your state archaeologist. Every state's got one, I think. Um, just just right. email them and see what they think. You know. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're suggesting is exactly what um, the National Park Service suggests. Yeah. Um, if you're on, on National Park Service land, if you're, you're hiking wherever you are, if it, it may be a National Historic Landmark, maybe a place like Chaco Canyon or Mesa Verde, or it may be a place that is not known for archaeological resources, but there are still those kinds of things there. Yeah. Um, the, what the thing they do, they say, is don't pick anything up. A photograph it. Um, if you're concerned that other people are going to see it and pick it up, maybe cover it with leaves. Make sure you've got a good indication of where it is, and then report it to the rangers. Yeah. You know, if, if you're in park service land, say, "Hey, look, um, we saw this. We want to make sure that um, that that nobody steals it, nobody takes it away." Or and maybe it and and in those cases, very often the rangers will show up. They will pick. The, they will record it. They'll have, get a GPS coordinates and they'll bring it back to a museum because they know that if if 100 people pass that by, 99 people may be um, responsible and leave it in place, but the 100th person is going to want to pick it, pick it up it. and run with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, and and with modern with the modern phones, especially people who have the really high tech phones, um, you can geotag your pictures. Right. Which oh, means yeah, exactly. They may not be as accurate as a total station or a GPS unit, but they're they're accurate within a certain range. So you could even take it one step further and the picture that you take, you know, grab the coordinates from that picture after you've taken it and give it to your local authorities because or your local archaeological <laughs> authorities. So please probably don't give a crap. Um, but I mean, if you were to take that step, it actually elevates you from being like random person who saw a cool thing to being a citizen scientist. And yeah. I mean, that's that's ideal. If everyone acted as a citizen scientist, then we'd have no problems. And to look at this from the other perspective as well, Sarah, if, in fact, you elect to pick the thing up, put it in your pocket, and bring it home, you are actually a criminal. You have violated right. the federal law. You are in violation of the of the American Antiquities Act and the uh, and later iterations of that act. And they can arrest you for having those things. Two brief stories. One is... Yeah, I was going to um, say, I've got a good one on that, too. I, 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 was, I was at the Edge of the Cedars, which is a beautiful... Um, uh, Park, I believe in. I um, got. Must be Utah. Anyway, <laughs> um, and it's a beautiful pueblo there, and and you know, great museum. Um, and one of the exhibits. It may not be a current exhibit, but I remember seeing an exhibit there years ago, which about the federal um, uh, authorities tracking down looters. And in one case, they actually did it with DNA. No. They said that wow. the person at the, who was looting the site, and I'm not going to say what it was because I don't want to help people out. But right. That, but something was left behind at the site that the, the FBI was called in. They recovered material that had DNA and they were able to identify who that person was. And that person went to prison. Yeah. Um, and, and the, some of the, the, the laws about, about looting sites 
um, some of the same um, um, uh, punishments that they apply to drug dealers. Oh, wow. Apply to looters. What that means is if you are like a, a real big looter and you've got like earth moving equipment, they will confiscate that equipment. Like if you're a drug lord and you're <laughs> flying in drugs with a the plane, they'll confiscate your plane. Yeah. Uh, if you if, if to access the site, you needed a big four wheel SUV and that's how you access the site. They will confiscate that vehicle if you were using it as part of this criminal act to loot a site. They'll, so they'll probably just, just confiscate your car. I mean, just don't do it. Yeah, and I and that's the that's that's the other end of it. I mean, it, we just uh, right before I left Indiana, we just had this huge kerfluffle um, where this, I think he was ninety three, honestly, and he had been collecting stuff forever. <laughs> right, sure. And the FBI finally got wind of him, and they descended upon his house. Like it was weird. No one knew really what was going on. There were that many FBI agents there, and they put up all these like biohazard tents and everything because the stuff that guy had was so old it was disintegrating oh, God, yeah. yeah so and he had like potential human remains and things i mean he, it was crazy but yeah, yeah they cool, yeah. they were negotiating what they were going to do this guy because he was 93 what are you going to do give him a life sentence anything over yeah, a right. year is a life sentence right, sure. you know so but yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't matter what age you are <sighs> I want to say the reality of the situation is if you've just got a couple few artifacts on hand, probably nothing bad's going to happen to you, especially since, you know, you're probably not bragging about it everywhere you go. But it's still just kind of, it destroys the scientific record. Right. And it it's kind of a selfish thing. You know, you're, you're destroying the scientific record for your own pleasure. If you're okay with that, then there's nothing I'm going to say from this point forward that's going to change it's your not, opinion. Yeah, it's not going to change it. Yeah, but if, you, if you've never realized that you were doing that, you know, maybe reconsider it next time. And instead of destroying it, kind of contribute to it, you know? A lot of people, what they don't understand, too, is if uh, a large site, you know, if you, you find something and it turns out to be significant, even if it, it doesn't turn out to be significant, a lot of archaeologists will give tours of their sites these days, the phase threes and the phase sure. twos. You can get a tour of them as long as it's not like a private thing, which unfortunately a lot of CRM jobs are. Right. But, you know, the last two field schools I was on, we had people constantly coming to the site and we were giving tours. Anyway. Well, uh, the last thing I wanted to say, Sarah, is that, that, that we're, we're a show that, you know, the th thematically, you know, this is a skeptic, a skeptical podcast. And sure. so I don't want to tell anybody that if you steal stuff from an archaeological site, you're going to be plagued by bad karma. But I'll just, I'll tell you this. Um, <laughs> plagued by bad have karma. You, have you, Sarah, have I'm you not ever... saying I'm putting a curse on you. Well, no, listen, listen, listen. The, the, the Park Service is really smart about this. Have you ever been to the Petrified National Forest, which is in Arizona? Um, when you walk in to their museum from, I think, the north entrance, um, you go into this room that is filled with glass cases. And when I first went in, what, what is this about? And they were pieces of petrified rock. And along with each piece of petrified wood is a letter that somebody sent to the, the director or the, 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 the head ranger of the petrified forest. And I, I started reading these letters and they're, Sarah, they're terrifying. It's, you're told when you walk in, don't pick anything up. This all belongs, you need to keep this, these geological specimens here. If you want a petrified wood, go outside of the forest. You can go buy some. Uh, and it's right. really cheap. Don't, 
if everybody picked up a piece of petrified wood, um, after a while, there'd be nothing left. And so, right. apparently, there is a, 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 a common belief that there is a curse on people who steal petrified wood. And so, huh. all of these letters, Sarah, is people, people writing, honest to God, dear director of the Petrified Forest, had I known there was a curse, I never would have picked this up. When I, when I picked this up in 1958, ever since then, my life has been a total disaster. I've lost oh, no. my job. I don't talk to my children anymore. I've become oh, an alcoholic. This is so sad. And, no, no, and please accept this and remove the curse. And it's letter <laughs> after letter after letter. Now, the, the, the folks, the administrators of the Petrified Forest say right up front, we're not telling you that this is going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry, perhaps. And, I need to see this room. I need to see this uh, now. Yeah, it's, I, you know what I'm going to do? I've got, I actually took photographs of a couple of the letters. I will oh, send awesome. those to you. Um, and it's kind of like, and it's clearly an effort on the part of the administrators there to say, hey, look, if, if there is this, this myth or if there is this superstition, what the hell? We're going to take advantage of it. And if, you know, if a handful of people say, you know what, you better not pick anything up because look at what happened. Look at the bad stuff that happened to these people. Well, then that little exhibit has earned its keep. Right. So no, Sarah, you know, I'm not telling people that if they pick up artifacts and illegally pocket them, that anything really bad's going to happen to them. I don't know that that's true, but you know, you never know, right? This is true. You don't know why that artifact's there. It it could be it could have been placed there to, you know, prevent a curse. It could be there to actually curse something. I mean, you don't know why that artifact's there. You should probably just take a picture and leave it there. We excavated this this beautiful cache of, of blades. This is in Connecticut and a number of people have asked me, well, do you feel badly about it? Because clearly these things were put there in that hole sixteen hundred years right. ago for a reason. I then say, listen, I'm not a superstitious person, so I don't believe that there's any, you know, evil thing out there that's going to affect me because we dug this up. However, the fact that we found this at all is the result of so many contingencies that shouldn't have happened. Right. That if you want to be superstitious, it's pretty clear I was directed to this site to dig it up. Now, I'm not saying I believe that, <laughs> but, you know, I think that's there's an equally valid argument that... I was meant to excavate that cache as uh, that, that argument is equally valid to one that's, well, wow, the p people put that down there 1600 years ago for a reason. And now you're upsetting, you know, the, the balance. You're also the destroying your own argument. Yes. You're destroying your argument about the, the cursed, cursed wood. But, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate for, uh, citizen scientists, uh, people who are not trained scientists helping out scientists who are. And, and I'm a big advocate for that, especially with the high tech world um, that we live in nowadays. It's, it's super easy to do, you know, emails everywhere. Everyone's got a phone. Also, if you think about it, you don't have to worry about storing these things after you find them. You, you've got the picture forever. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's more convenient. Um, other ways that you could not loot, but still be involved with the archeological process is you know volunteering your Absolutely. time with your with your local museums with your local um uh, sorry colleges and stuff it, and i don't mean just going and being the person that takes tickets a lot of them will use uh lay people for labor 
on on uh, especially phase ones um and on excavations to you know sift dirt and and look for artifacts in the back dirt um which i mean can be really fun it can be really fun for somebody who you know didn't do that for their entire field school um so I mean, you you should definitely go give it a try one of the best days I ever had was working with a CRM group where we we got a bunch of locals together and we field walked uh, a field right after a rain. Mm-hmm. And and these people were like part of the local there's actually amateur archaeologist groups out there. Um most states have one and uh yeah, they, it was the local amateur archaeologists who came out and helped us out with that and crap, some of them have been walking fields longer than I have. There're lots so. of ways to become engaged in um, archaeological pursuits and I, yeah I, you know absolutely one way of doing it is just is visiting publicly controlled archaeological sites uh, you know hey listen when you go out and hike a trail at in three rivers in Tularosa New Mexico and photograph rock all these thousands of pieces of rock art and look for them yeah. among the boulders you're doing exactly in a way fundamentally what the archaeologists have done which is finding identifying recording so it's and you do that without touching the rock art panels without bringing anything home but you're right Sarah. Right. you got a photograph it's going to last forever and you can put it on your you know, use it as your the wallpaper on your computer and you <laughs> and you have in that way or for your icon picture yeah you've in that way you've 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 involved yourself in doing archaeology and you know to, the, the the common phrase that they use right in the environmental movement is is what um, take all leave only footprints and take only pictures and that's that's absolutely the, the same the same um, theme applies in, in yeah. archaeology yeah because because once it's gone it's gone okay. there's no getting it back and like I think you mentioned a term it's a, a non-renewable resource perhaps the the deal here is there are a fight there are a finite number of paleo indian sites there are a finite number yeah. of terminal archaic sites here in the east there are a finite number of basket maker sites and when the last one of those is looted there are there are no more being made that they're gone forever yeah. it's like an extinct yeah. species so yeah end of the deal you know non-renewable resource don't loot uh if you have questions contact your state archaeologist send us a question we'll try to field it and uh yeah, thanks for recording with us, Ken. Absolutely. All right. Good night, Sarah. All right. Good night. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. No, it don't do dinosaurs. It don't do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.